I'm Khalil Ekelona, and this is Nashville. Survivors of sexual assault can feel isolated, confused, and ashamed. And this can go on for years. With proper care, support, and resources, survivors can find some comfort and healing. But finding those resources and navigating the legal system, it can all be daunting. So what do resources look like here in Tennessee? That's coming up later this hour. But first, 10Care's renewal system has long been criticized for being confusing and ineffective. As a result, thousands of Tennesseans have lost their health coverage just because they didn't file their paperwork properly or on time. The pandemic put this process on pause, but the renewal system is set to become active again this fall, possibly putting thousands of households at risk of losing their health care. Brent Kelman is Brett Kelman, pardon me, is a reporter for Kaiser Health News, and he's been following this story. Hey, Brett, welcome back to This is Nashville. Honored to be back. Thanks for having me. Happy to have you. So first, can you explain what 10 Care is for people who may be unfamiliar with it? Sure. So in every state in the country, they have a Medicaid program, which is functionally a health insurance program for people who are vulnerable. That is largely people who are impoverished or live close to the poverty line, and then people who have certain disabling conditions like blindness or temporary coverage for pregnant women. All of these programs run a little different. Tennessee's is one of the least generous programs in who it covers, but it does cover about one-fifth of all Tennesseans. So anything that happens with TennCare affects a lot of people who are very vulnerable. Okay, so explain the reactivation of the renewal system. How will that affect people? Okay, so in normal times, Medicaid programs once a year require people to prove that they are eligible. Most of the time that requires uh, some paperwork, some income verification documents. Basically, you have to show that you are poor enough or vulnerable enough to qualify. Mm -hmm. Um, These processes work different in every state. Recently, because of the coronavirus pandemic, the federal government has put this entire program on pause, which means no Medicaid program is requiring people to prove that they're eligible. As a result, Medicaid programs are growing. They have grown to historic levels. There are more people in Medicaid now than ever before. But at some point in the future, currently scheduled for October, we'll see if it happens in October, the public emergency for coronavirus is going to end, and Medicaid programs across the country, including TennCare, are going to once again restart this renewal process, and mm. people will have to prove they're eligible. And what that means is millions of Americans are going to lose their health insurance, some because it's proven they do not qualify, and others because they get lost somewhere in the bureaucratic system in which they're expected to prove it. And what that means is that poor people in need of health insurance will lose it even though they should have it. Now, for your story, you spent time with one family in Belfast, Tennessee, that had their share of problems with the system, let's say. Tell us what happened to them. Sure. So at the heart of this story is a family, the Lesters. It's a family of five in Belfast, which is a little town of about 600 people, about an hour south of Nashville. Um, The Lesters are poor. There is no question that they would qualify for 10-care insurance. And they had it. Up until one day in 2019, when their young son fell off the porch and broke his wrist, and they rushed to the hospital, and when they got there, they found out their insurance was gone. It had vanished, and they didn't know why. 
Um, the timing was terrible. Not only had their young son just broke his wrist, but uh, the Kate Lester, the matriarch of the family, was nine months pregnant and was about mm. to give birth through a cesarean section, which is expensive. Mm -hmm. um, the Lesters didn't understand why they'd lost TenCare, and when they looked into it, TenCare basically said, you were supposed to fill out this renewal paperwork, you didn't, and therefore your insurance has been disconnected. It took them years to figure out what actually happened. But long story short, the paperwork that they were supposed to fill out got mailed to the wrong address, and it was a horse pasture. It was an empty field. Wow. And since the Lesters didn't do the paperwork and the horses didn't do the paperwork, TenCare took their insurance away. Is their situation unique? I really wish it was, mm. but the reality is several investigations of TenCare, including one by myself, have proven over the years that the vast majority of people who lose health insurance don't do it because they're found to be ineligible. They do it because somewhere along the line, something went wrong with their renewal paperwork. There was actually a state audit of TenCare in 2020, and it looked at 240,000 children who had lost their health insurance. And what it found was that only 5% of them were actually found to be from families who weren't eligible. The majority of the rest, were they eligible? This is radio, so you can't tell that I'm shrugging, mm -hmm. but the reality is TenCare didn't know. They just knew that the paperwork didn't get done. Now, how many of those other families did the paperwork get mailed to an empty field or the wrong address or not mailed at all, or they didn't know how to fill it out? or they didn't speak English, or it was too confusing, or they lost it, or a million reasons, which I would question if those are good reasons to take a child's health insurance away. What about this paperwork required for renewal? How difficult is it to complete? So I, I think that really depends on the person who's trying to fill it out. Uh, I have seen these documents. They're not unlike doing your taxes without the help of like TurboTax or something like that. Mm -hmm. Some of the packets are about 40 pages. TenCare has changed them. They have gotten shorter. Sometimes they can be done online. Um, I would like to believe that I would complete this paperwork with no trouble, but I've also never tried. And if I messed it up and I lost my insurance, I wouldn't be so confident anymore. Okay, so there's an ongoing class action lawsuit in Tennessee filed against TenCare in 2020, just before the pandemic. What is... What is it about, and what's the current status of this lawsuit? So we've talked about how Medicaid's going to restart its renewal process, and all these people are going to lose coverage. And that is going to happen. But separate from that, right at the beginning of the pandemic, approximately 30 to 40 families who had had experiences similar to the Lester's got together and sued TenCare. And what the lawsuit has basically boiled down to is this. The renewal process is so broken that you should take Everyone who lost insurance between March 2019 and March 2020 and put them back on until TenCare can prove they are not eligible. Mm. Not prove that they didn't do their paperwork, prove that they are not eligible. Um, these arguments have been presented to a judge. TenCare has, has tried to dismiss the lawsuit and failed. Uh, in a hearing in March, a federal judge seemed relatively sympathetic to the plaintiffs, saying that he was very worried about families slipping through the cracks. And he could potentially issue a ruling that would put about 108,000 Tennessee families back on 10 care like that.
Have you heard anything from TenCare officials about this problem? So TenCare, yes, uh, TenCare's argument is that they try, that it is ultimately a family's responsibility to keep their address updated and to complete the paperwork, and that when those things don't happen, TenCare goes to great lengths to make sure that they try to find the right address, that they give the families a lot of chances, that they have the options to appeal, that they have grace periods to get the paperwork in. And I think most, if not all, of those things are largely true. But that doesn't change the fact that, as we said, 5% of people who are disenrolled are actually found to be ineligible. Mm -hmm. So even if TenCare is trying really, really hard, is the process working? It's hard to argue that it is. So what are you keeping an eye out for as this story develops? Well, I'm definitely watching for the judge's ruling. It would be fascinating if TenCare was required to re-enroll all of these families. Um, and also, the end of the public health emergency, which, again, may or may not happen in October, but it's definitely going to happen at some point, is going to cause ripples across the country. And it's going to be different in every state, but it'll definitely be felt here. TenCare has estimated that another 300,000 enrollees will be disenrolled in the year after the public health emergency ends, which means let's say it ends in October, that's 300,000 Tennesseans losing their health insurance over the following year. It's a big number. We hear quick, Real quick before we let you go, how are the Lesters doing now? Well, good news. Throughout this whole process of joining the class action lawsuit, the Lesters functionally eventually proved that they should have had 10 care all along. TenCare reinstarted their coverage and has covered the medical debt that they amounted in the middle. So while they were sunk into debt, it appears now that they will be able to climb out. All right. Brett Kelman is a reporter for Kaiser Health News. Brett, thanks for coming on to the show and sharing your reporting. I really appreciate the opportunity to be here. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll hear from two survivors of sexual assault and learn how they have processed their trauma and are taking action to help others. Are you a survivor of sexual assault? What resources do you wish you had? Tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. Before we get started, I want to mention that we will be talking about sexual assault and sexual violence on today's show. Some of the stories and language may be triggering to some listeners, so please use your best discretion. If you or someone you know is a survivor of sexual assault and is in need of help, you can call the National Sexual Assault 24-Hour Hotline. That number is 800-656-4673. Again, 800-656-4673. Now, according to the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network, or RAIN, every 68 seconds an American is sexually assaulted, and one out of every six American women has been the victim of a rape or, sex or attempted rape in her lifetime. But those are just numbers. Survivors of sexual assault are real people. They are our friends, relatives, and neighbors, whether we know their story or not. And... They need care and resources. Those resources are not always easy to find, but they can be a lifeline. My next guest has been there. 
Kendall Parker, welcome to This Is Nashville, and thank you for being here today. Thank you for having me. How are you today? I am good. Thank you. Yeah. C can you tell me a little bit about yourself? Yeah. Um, I'll start with the normal. My name is Kendall. I am 27 years old, born and raised in Nashville. Um, I'm an actress and an advocate um, for a multitude of things, but specifically for survivors of sexual assault. Now, I understand you're a survivor of sexual assault. Are you comfortable with sharing some of your story with us today? Yes, absolutely. Okay, so, you know, t tell us what happened. Yeah, um, so to not dive into the all the details, because, you know, we could be here for hours if that were the case, but um, it started when I was really little, about seven years old, Um my mother had entered into a relationship where the man had got her hooked on drugs and started essentially slowly working his way up to molesting me um, until I was about 13 years old. Um, and it was just the consistent time. There was times where it was worse when my mother would be gone for work or just a different circumstance. And um, I have a brother who is terminally ill and he was diagnosed when I was young as well. And I can remember um, from a young age knowing that I had to also protect him. Hmm. And I can't remember where a time where that thought wasn't in my brain. And I knew that I could protect myself. And it was hard for me to also not take a lot of gain, oh, excuse me, shame and guilt for that as well, because I was like, did I put myself in that predicament? Mm. And I kind of had to be like, no, you were a literal child. You were doing what you had to to survive, because if not, it was more so the fear of what would happen if I didn't. Did you tell anybody what was happening to you at that time? No. Not a soul. I didn't say anything until I was 18 years old. And it stopped when I was 13. Now, when you're 18 is when you began to come to grips with what happened to you. What did you do next then? Uh, well, spiraled, for starters. Um, because it's kind of a... One thing that they don't talk about, and this is happens with some people, but when you have trauma, specifically something that a physical trauma that happens to your person, your body will completely almost forget that it happens to in order for you to live and survive. And your mind is really good at blocking out things. But the second you talk about it, it is a flood that just hits you that you don't even know how to explain, describe. Um, so it was heavy and I knew about the sexual assault center through prior volunteering I had done with another organization here in Nashville. Um, and my mom basically forced me to go. She's like, you have two options. I know you're an adult, but you have two options. You either go get help or I'm, I'm done trying to like, and she, she did that because that's how I respond is kind of like a tough love type of deal. And I went in and my life was forever changed in the best way possible by 
choosing to do something for myself and to get help for what had happened to me and learning that it was a part of me, but it's not who I am. I'm glad you made that choice. Thank you. Now, my next guest is also a survivor. We're only using her first name to protect her professional privacy. Ashley, welcome to This Is Nashville, and thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me. So how are you feeling today? Um, I'm feeling really good. Um, it's interesting to hear Kendall's story and how many different comparisons there are, you know, as far as feelings are concerned, even though we have totally different stories. You know, can you tell me a little bit about yourself and where you grew up? Um, sure. I uh, grew up in Charlotte, North Carolina and moved to Knoxville um, halfway through high school and then moved to Nashville to take on a job here. And um, my name's Ashley and I'm 39 years old and I enjoy traveling. I have a little tiny camper and I boondock across the country and okay. just have a good time. Now, are, are you comfortable with sharing your story? Completely, yes. Um, it took a long time to get here, but I'm very comfortable sharing in hopes that it can help somebody else through their trauma. So I was 17 the first time I was assaulted. I um, was still a virgin, and I was at my best friend's house for a New Year's party, and um, they made me a drink. Her older brother and friends made me a drink. I didn't want to drink it because I had clear bracket braces on and it would stain your braces with Coke products. So I refused at first, not knowing anything about roofies or how that worked. Um, and I drank the drink uh, under peer pressure. And about 20 minutes later, um, something started and I had blocked the memory for about a year and a half to two years before it came back um, of trying to say no. And um, it's kind of it's weird saying all this out loud because I've, you know, written it, um, but saying it publicly is it's a lot different. But, um, you know, after that happened, I ignored it for about two years. I buried the feelings, didn't think about it. And about two years when those feelings started coming back and some of those memories, I was like, oh, my gosh, this happened to me, not understanding fully. Um, and it was it was hard to kind of digest. And I just continued burying the feelings because I felt like that was the best way forward for me to protect myself. Um, and to Kendall's point, you do block those memories out. They're completely gone. And um, when I moved to Nashville, fast forward, I was 30 years old and I had a friend from Knoxville come to visit. Um, we had been friends for 10 years. We had gone out quite a bit and um, it happened again. I was out at a bar downtown and I knew I had to quit drinking and I told them I was done drinking. I had to go home. I went to the bathroom, came back out. There was a round of shots waiting for me and I had one more shot and that was it. And I woke up next to somebody that I did not know that was part of the group that was new to the group. And um, yeah, it just really, it's, it's been a lot to kind of work through this. And after that second time and being 30 years old, I, I understood it differently, mm. what had happened to me. And I tried to ignore it the same way. And that's not possible. So um, after taking all your dignity and all your confidence, it's really hard to work. It's really hard to function in life because um, everything's been stripped away. They've, they've kind of killed a piece of you in a sense. But um, overcoming that, I think, gives you so much strength in a different way. Um, now, looking back, it's odd to say this, but I wouldn't change it because of who I've become as a result. Now, what steps did you take? Um, a after 
my work performance kind of failed at work, my boss remembered that weekend that I came in because I had just started a new job in Nashville. And he kind of came in like I had to do an evaluation and they said um, they knew something was off. And he remembered that weekend and having to tell two male bosses what happened to you to kind of give them um, perspective on why your performance wasn't as good as what they hired you for the position to be. Um, that was that was difficult, but they encouraged me to seek counseling, and I did, and I went to um, about 10 sessions, and my therapist actually dismissed me after the 10th session because um, I compartmentalized things so well hmm. that she was like, there's not really anything left for us to talk about. Um, I feel like you've handled this extremely well, and I'm always here if you need something. So... But so, the therapy helped tremendously. Mm -hmm. And I don't know why there's such a stigma on going. I would have gone sooner had I known how much it would have helped me in the long run. Kendall, were you able to compartmentalize what happened? Oh, like a master. Yes, absolutely. Um, you kind of figure out a way where I always refer to the way I compartmentalize is I see, my, see it in my brain like a file box. And I'm able to open it and then scan through the files. I'm like, all right, today we're going to deal with blank. Mm -hmm. Today we're going to deal with, or we're not going to at all. Um, off pure survival, because that's just kind of how the human brain ends up working. And that happened to me with, I went through four therapists. Um, and the first one, first and second one, I did exactly what Ashley did, where they're like, oh, you're... You're doing really well. And on the inside, it's just a forest on fire. And one articulating that to be like, I feel like I'm literally insane in here. But there's also a fear of, for me was, if I express this, is this going to get me like put in a padded room? Because of the stigma of how survivor, it's like, oh, she, they've been through a sexual assault trauma, they must be incredibly messed up in the head. And I've been told that before. Um, mm. And so you learn, you're like, all right, well, I'm going to compartmentalize this because it's what I have to do. Now, you both mentioned that it took you some time mm -hmm. to not only recognize what happened to you, but mm -hmm. to talk to others. Mm -hmm. You know, what do people who are not survivors, what do, what do they misunderstand about why it's so hard? to say what happened. Ashley? Oh, that's a, that's a tough question. Um, I think if somebody's not been through it before, which I hope to God, people don't have to go through anything that we've experienced, you know, like that's why I got involved with the SAC Center was to help bring awareness. Um, I just want people to listen and know that we're not broken. Um, we're, we're just trying to heal and it just takes a long time. Each person's so different in their journey on how they recover. Um, they require different things. So it's hard for me to speak about, you know, the population in general that's experienced this. But for me, it was just to have somebody to listen to and telling my family was the hardest part. They didn't know about the first one. They didn't know about the second one until months after the second one had happened. Mm -hmm. And my brother was actually in town visiting and this is where I get choked up is when I talk about my family. And the impact it had on them because, like, it was my job to protect them. And the therapist helped me realize that it's actually their job to help protect me and to work through it with me because that's your family. That's what they're there for. And so I think my mom was a little hurt that I didn't go to her immediately. 
And that was projected a little bit, but not, you know, I mean, just the hurtfulness that it caused the entire family. It was, it was tough. Now, so, now Kendall, you also mentioned this need to protect your little brother while you, while you were, you know, going through this situation. And then you also mentioned that you, you talked to your mom and your mom convinced you. Yeah, but to completely reflect off of what Ashley said, there is a need that you're like, yes, I have to protect my family. I didn't want any, I didn't want my mom to think it was her fault. I didn't want my father to think it was his fault. I didn't want anybody, any part of my family to think it was their fault because it was not. Um, or even my friends be like, I I didn't even realize this was happening. Mm-hmm. Um, that's one thing about for my situation and the situation I was in, was it was hidden so well by my abuser and by me because that's how that game is dealt, truly. And th- that's why um, I kind of was like, all right, well, I'm not going to say anything because I don't want to upset anybody else. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil Ekelona. We're talking this hour about sexual assault and the resources available to survivors in Tennessee. If you or someone you know is a survivor of sexual assault and you need assistance, you can call the Nashville National Sexual Assault Hotline 24 hours a day. That number is 800-656-4673. Now, Kendall, did you go to law enforcement with your story? I did, yes. What was their response? Um, it was a mixture. So, um, because it happened when I was underage, I had to go to the city where it happened. I couldn't take it to the main headquarters here in Nashville. Um, and for privacy reasons, I will not be saying where it happened, but, um, I took it to them first and I had to, my story changed a couple times because I was remembering things that I had suppressed from the age of like seven years old to now 18. Mm -hmm. Um, And so at first it was almost like, okay, well, her story's a little all over the place. And so I went back and I spoke with the detective and I was like, you gotta gotta level with me for a second because I am now just having an influx of memories flood into my brain all at one time. Um, But then, so it finally got taken to the main detective and my case was dropped. No explanation, no nothing, no contact. And just, I never heard anything back. And You still haven't heard anything to this day? No, not a single thing. It was just completely dropped. Ashley, did you go to law enforcement? I did. It, it took me about a year and a half after the second assault. I didn't on the first one. Um, the second one, I went um, and talked to actually the same officer that dealt with the Vanderbilt case. Um, he was very kind, um, very um, offered me a ton of options. I never pursued it further than just filing the report with everything, all the details that I could remember just in case that person went after somebody else, that they would at least have some type of documentation that this did happen because I didn't have the energy to pursue this the way that I wish I did. It's, I mean, imagine it's a very difficult decision mm-hmm. to make. Yeah. What advice would you give someone who's in the process of thinking and, and making that decision? Um, always report it. If if you, you know, try to remember every detail, write it down, take it to the officers. That way, 
if something does happen to somebody else and you're not able to pursue it for you, you have that documentation for somebody else. And hopefully eventually they'll get caught. And it is very frustrating looking back. I wish I had because both of my attackers have families and children now and their wives have no idea. And that's hard for me to digest. Hmm. You know, Kendall, tell me what helped you the most as you started your healing process? I think the biggest thing was being honest with myself about what really happened. Um, I spent so long pretending that it didn't happen or um, making it seem less than what it really was uh, for protection of other people around me. When in actuality, I had to kind of have a quote unquote coming to Jesus moment with myself and be like, this really happened. This was the severity of it. And in order for you to get better, you're going to have to be honest with yourself and with your therapist. Mm -hmm. Ashley? I think to Kendall's point, the honesty with yourself on what actually happened and, you know, suppressing those feelings and emotions and burying them does not make them go away. You have to deal with them. And I think um, after therapy, it was a big change in my life. And then um, in 2020, I actually went public with my story for the first time on my social media and that was a huge release. It no longer was overshadowing my life just to let it out mm -hmm. and acknowledge that it happened. And that, you know, the people that know you and that are closest to you that maybe didn't know your story know that you're just a normal person just like them. And, um, yeah, just trying to avoid that stigma. Like I said, we're not broken. Mm -hmm. We're just healing. That's right. What resources do you wish were available to you at that time? Oh, gosh, of course, the SAC Center. I, I wish I knew more about those type of resources because after, you know, both attacks, I didn't go get a rape kit done or anything like that. Um, I think when you're drugged, you're in such a fog afterwards that knowing that this could have been a possibility that this did happen to you while you're in denial, you still need to take steps to try and preserve any type of um, evidence that may be there. Just so for future, if you change your mind, I know it's traumatic now, but not having evidence or a way to pursue that is even more traumatic if you want to down the road. Kendall, what resources do you wish were around? Um, you know, I think that's a, for me, because it happened when I was young, I think it's such a, I think f I'm going to speak a little bit differently than what mm -hmm. Ashley answered. Um, people teaching about it more and being more like realistic about it and talking to children about it the way that because of the fact that one in four people it happens to so and 90 percent of those attacks are on people under the age of 18 which if you're under 18 you don't have access to a lot of resources because a parent has to be involved mm -hmm. so what, what do you want to tell anyone any survivors who are listening right now um, I think the biggest thing is that we are not a stigma. We are not what people think of us. Um, I think people think for survivors that we're just going to sit and let it happen and let our life take over our our being as a human. Um, but there's so much beauty on the other side of getting that help and making that decision for yourself and having the choice to get better for nobody but yourself. 
That is Kendall Parker. She was joined by Ashley, whose last name we're withholding to protect her professional privacy. They are both survivors of sexual assault and advocates for fellow survivors. I know this wasn't easy. I want to thank you both for coming on to the show and sharing your stories with us. And I commend you both for your incredible amount of strength. Thank, thank you, you both. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. <laughs> We have to take a short break, but when we come back, we'll learn about resources available to Tennesseans who are survivors of sexual assault. Tweet us your questions about resources and how to get help at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Khalil Colonna, and this is Nashville. We've been talking this hour about sexual assault. Before the break, we heard from two survivors about how hard it can be to talk about what happened and get access to help you and get the help that you need. But there are resources available to help us get a better understanding of what those resources are and how to navigate them, I'd like to bring in my next guests. Lorraine, Lorraine McGuire is Vice President of Development and Marketing with the Sexual Assault Center, and Lorraine Fernandez-Valentin is a client navigator at the Sexual Assault Center. Welcome to both of you. Thank you for being here with This is Nashville. Thanks for having us. I yeah, much appreciate it. Now, Lorraine, you know, what range of help do you provide survivors through the Sexual Assault Center. Sexual Assault Center wants to be there from the moment it happens to whenever you're ready to get help for something that maybe even happened in the past. So we have the only non-hospital facility where someone can come in and get a medical legal exam, also known as a rape kit, done. So you go there immediately after. Or, as you've heard from Ashley and Kendall, the moment that you know that you're ready to receive help, SAC wants to be there to help. And so we offer therapy and advocacy services. Uh, we have the rape clinic. And then Loren is basically the first point of contact that somebody will have coming into SAC. And do you all help survivors of all ages? Absolutely. I believe the last time I checked, we had clients ranging from three to 94. Okay. Now, Loren, describe the process of what happens when you meet with the survivor. Okay. So uh, my job at the Sexual Assault Center is kind of like the front door. I'm the first, not only the first person they meet and deal with, but uh, myself and the other client navigator, our job is to run the initial assessments, interviews, determine what needs this person has, critical needs, imminent needs, uh, crisis needs, and refer them to the appropriate resources at that time and help discern what type of therapeutic services they will eventually need in the long run. If they need something now, we connect them to that then. If they need something a little bit later, we work towards getting them connected to those resources. So whether it be in-house, whether it be external, our job is to get everyone to where they need to be. What are the most common incidents of sexual assault you see here in Nashville? Um, so it's a mix. We have a lot of sexual assault survivors that were assaulted in their youth and very frequently they're coming in as they've never developed a narrative they've never told their story 
And that's a common enough issue. But we also have issues with people being assaulted at bars, people being drugged. However, the most prevalent types of assault are the ones that happen near the home, the ones that happen within family. So it's kind of a mixed bag. Like Lorraine said, we have survivors from 3 to 94, and every story is a little different in that way. Now, Lorraine, since the Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade, there have been an increased concern over what happens if you're a survivor of sexual assault, given that now abortion, even after incest and rape in some cases, is not legal. What steps is the Sexual Assault Center taking to address this issue? We are taking a really, really strong stand in support of survivors of rape and incest who become pregnant somebody's body autonomy has been taken away from them in the act of rape. And the pregnancy is something that was put, forced upon them in the cases where that happens. And so Sexual Assault Center believes that every survivor of this deserves to choose what happens next with their body. Um, to be forced, a decision forced upon them is another form of trauma. And so we are actively going to be working on legislation. We have community meetings. Our next one is August 24th at Sexual Assault Center, where we are going to be rolling out what our legislative action is going to be uh, for the next session, as well as actively opposing anything that is does not allow for exceptions for rape and incest. Now, why is it important for not only, not only for lawmakers, but for the public to recognize this exception? Rape and incest is such a complicated issue. It's not black and white the way, and you hear that with every story that you listen to of an actual survivor, Kendall and Ashley and everybody that has experienced this. It's complicated and it's traumatizing and the effects are go so much deeper than most people realize. Mm. And again, choices have been taken away from these people and they need to be given back. The choice of healing. Sexual assault doesn't believe strongly in one way or the other. We want them to have a choice. If they choose to have a baby, we want to support them and walk with them through every single step of that. If they choose not to have a baby, we want to love them and support them through every step of that. It's just not a matter. It's just a matter of them getting their choices back. Now, Lorraine, have you met any clients who were concerned about not having access to an abortion under these conditions? Absolutely. Um, it's not just with Adult clients, it's with our younger skewing, it's anyone who is looking to, who's had, like Lorraine said, their autonomy taken away, they're, they've been instilled with a new trauma, they're suffering in a new way to have those rights further complicated by nameless, faceless people away from them. It's that much more difficult. We have to be amenable to their needs. We have to be able to support them where they are. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil Ekeloner. We're talking this hour with Lorraine McGuire and Lorraine Fernandez-Valentin from the Sexual Assault Center here in Nashville. Now, Lorraine, you know, thinking about the messaging behind this, how vital is it to have clear messaging to battle misinformation that's out there? It is so important. It can be the difference in some cases between life and death feeling in in some cases, life and death, if not receiving the medical care you need after with something like strangulation, uh, those are all types of things that are just so important for people to know. But uh, 
it just can make a difference between somebody deciding that they want to press charges and missing the window of opportunity of when they had that evidence collected, knowing uh, how long they have, where they could go, uh, having that information. And it's the information that nobody wants to need. Mm-hmm. Everything we're about to say, nobody ever wants to need this information, but knowing it ahead of time helps you yourself if it happens to you, or you can be a friend and help someone get through. Because as Ashley said, if you've been drugged and you your mind is foggy and you just don't really know what to do, you have to have the right information as quickly as possible to act. What are some of the most common misconceptions people have? That you can go to any ER any emergency room and get a rape kit done. You can only go to specialized ones that have specialized nurses. So as I said, sexual assault center is uh, is the only non-hospital, but you there's only uh, three or four other hospitals in this Nashville area that you can go to to get a rape kit done. Uh, you have 120 hours. You that's the that's the time frame that you need to get the evidence collected. Getting evidence collected through a rape kit does not mean that you are filing a police report. You're not pressing charges. You actually have up to 10 years to decide mm. what you're going to do. It used to be two. We worked hard for legislation last year. It's now 10. So you have that option. Uh, and you have the right to have an advocate with you. The advocate that Sexual Assault Center offer is the only person that doesn't need anything from the victim. They're just there to support the victim. And those are important things for people to know. Increased education yes. is one of the methods to help prevent sexual assault. And you all have this program called Safe Bar. Can you tell us a little bit more, Lorraine, about this program? Absolutely. So as Lorraine was saying, and as you heard from, from Ashley's story, that is a very common theme we were seeing with people coming into the uh, to get rape kits done because they were drugged or alcohol was involved. And so we work with partners to have a safe bar program where we work with bars around the Nashville area, around the state. Actually, we do trainings statewide and it's a bystander intervention. There's We train the staff to know what to do. There's a shot somebody can go order that lets them know they're feeling uncomfortable. We provide drug detection coasters. So if you think your drug, uh, your drink has been drugged, you can test it out on this coaster. So it's just training the staff on what to do. What is that shot that someone can order if they're feeling uncomfortable at a bar? So we, it's called an angel shot. I know. I was like, should I say it? Because <laughs> it's, I don't, but it is. We post, it's posted on the inside of the bathroom doors. Okay. And so you go and you say an angel shot. Sometimes it's something different if you're at a brewery mm-hmm. where there's no <laughs> shots available, but it just, it, it lets the bartender know, I feel uncomfortable. Something is wrong. And the bartender should know how to react from there. It's all a part of peer education. Now, Loren, how can we increase Peer education, like like who are the people you would like to see become more involved in the prevention of sexual assault? I think it's across the board because when you talk about education, it's a societal concern. It's not an individual concern. We need parents to be more aware so that they can educate their youth. We need professionals more aware so that they can educate their peers. We need paraprofessionals more aware so that they can train others um, from clinicians to doctors to teachers, everyone needs to be more informed so we can remove the stigma around sexual assault as well as help prevent it in the long haul for society. There's no need for it. We can do better. How much harder is it for to find resources for survivors from marginalized communities? Like what obstacles are they facing when they seek help? So barriers to service um, are kind of abound. So the greater issues are 
and those populations are cultural. We have cultural issues that come into play. Uh, for example, like in black communities, we rely on the church, but that's not always an ideal circumstance to report. It doesn't always lend to our safe or our informed assistance. We have similar in Spanish communities, Latinx as well. There are so many cultural things that get in the way of victim survivors and getting their needs met. And it's not anything that the cultures have done wrong. It's just how we're built. It's just how it's done. So similar with immigrant populations and anyone who is in a more just different culture. What type of considerations do you all give from someone from one of those groups? Anything that they need. We meet the clients where we are. I cannot stress that enough. And when they come through our doors, whether they be limited English proficiency or otherwise we are there, cultural competency becomes important and being well-versed or at least well-researched as much as you possibly can in the moment as well as any considerations you can take at the time, it that helps. Anything to facilitate those the client's needs as well as anything to facilitate communication. Are, Lorraine, are survivors treated differently from different marginalized backgrounds? Absolutely. It's an unfortunate reality that you see uh, racial disparities, socioeconomic class disparities. Uh, people have in their mind what is considered a good victim that they can relate to. And if they're not relatable, then there are accusations of believability, of uh it's just really unfortunate the way. And you also have just the stigma within communities of trusting law enforcement and uh, people in middle class, if that's not the class that you're in. So there are a lot of barriers that we are now trying to do outreach for to let people know that we are a safe place that they can come. And we try to be as open with that as possible. Now, before we go, I want to run through questions that someone who is recently sexually assaulted may have. Mm-hmm. Where can they go? So you can go in the Nashville area. You can go to Vanderbilt. You can go to Nashville General. And you can request an advocate from Sexual Assault Center. St. Thomas, Midtown, and Skyline also offer rape kits, but they are, we do not service them with advocacy services. But we encourage people to come to the SAFE Clinic because it is very trauma-informed. I think you mentioned this earlier, but let's review it because it's important. How long... Do people have to get a rape kit done? 120 hours. Don't shower. Don't change. Don't eat. Don't brush your teeth. Uh, I know that's hard, but try to get that and to get as much evidence as possible. Another another thing you may have mentioned, but we'll re- reiterate. Thank you. How long do people have to decide to press charges? Ten years. Ten years. Ten years. Okay. And what are some of the resources out there for survivors? Yeah. So we have a crisis line. I know you shared the RAIN one, but there is a local one for statewide in Tennessee. It's 866-811-7473. And that is a number you can call in crisis. If you're triggered by hearing this story right now Mm -hmm. and you need to talk to somebody, you can call that number. If you're unsure what to do because you suspect something, you can call that number. Uh, We had somebody who was uh, parents that were on their way to the safe clinic because their daughter had experienced rape and the the crisis line worker talked to them for two hours and 47 minutes on their drive in to help them process what had happened. So when they got there, they were ready. So that is a number and they can say, talk to Loren, call, you know, give them a call. They can say, uh, you need to go to the 
to the clinic immediately or go to a find a hospital nearby, they can give resources. So if they live in Memphis or live in Knoxville or live in Chattanooga, they know which hospitals there that they can go to. Okay. And Lorraine, what, what do you want people to know about sexual assault and what they can do not only to prevent it, but to support survivors? When it comes down to it, education and education is going to be key. We need more people more aware because the stigma of sexual assault, it, it hangs over the entire thing. We have to not only do better, but be better for our clients, for our families, for our friends, for everyone that's involved and affected because it affects everyone in society. Maybe not equally, but it does affect everyone. Lorraine? Same. I mean, one of the the people, one of the survivors that was going to come today but couldn't make it said, I asked why she didn't immediately after. And she said she told her friends and they didn't know how to help her. And it wasn't until she got to college and it was commonly talked about. It was an open discussion. There was no stigma attached to it till she realized I need to get help for this. So destigmatizing it, talking to our kids about what it is, talking to every age group to say, if this happened, it was not your fault. We believe you. And there is help and there is life on the other side of this. I really want to thank both of you for the work that you're doing. And I really want to thank for you for coming on to this show. This is a, a, an incredibly important topic and one that we're going to continue to follow up on at This Is Nashville. And anyone listening, make sure, make sure you take note of the resources available. We'll definitely have them on a post at thisisnashville.org. My guests were Loren Fernandez-Valentin. They were joined by Lorraine McGuire, who both are with the Sexual Assault Center here in Nashville. Again, thanks to you both for being on the show today. Thank you for having Thank us. Thank you for the opportunity. And again, we will have a full list of resources available on this show's post at thisisnashville.org. Tell your friends, tell your loved ones. We want to thank everyone who tuned in this hour. Quilts, printmaking, and clothing tomorrow. We cover the legacy of textile arts in Tennessee. I have a nice quilt at home. This is Nashville is a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Steve Harouche, Rose Gilbert, and Tasha A.F. Limley. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos-Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tuthope. Shout out to our intern, Doreen Chernecki. The masterminds behind our theme music are LaRange and Namir Blade. The conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. Find us on Facebook and Instagram and tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil Ekelona. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody. And be good to each other. <laughs>